If you want to go ahead and turn in your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 17. 1 Samuel chapter 17. We'll be starting there in just a moment. I would just say, uh, I can't remember if it was um, uh, said in the announcements or not, but the uh, men's monthly uh, Bible class or Bible study is going to be uh, this week. And so uh, if you're a man and a member here, make sure that you're there. Uh, we'll be meeting here at the building. So the uh, you can see it in the bulletin in the back. You can pick that up, and the details are on there. But um, that is this week, so just make sure that you're planning on being here, uh, especially if uh, you're a member here at Lakeside. <coughs> First Samuel chapter 17. Uh, especially if you've been in the adult class, we have been going over the story of the Bible, and a couple of times as we've gotten to the period of the United Kingdom, one of the main chapters that I think is an easier passage to remember uh, where you are in the timeline is this is a very famous story, the story of David and Goliath. Um, and it's a famous story for good reason. This is a story that many people don't remember, or that many people um, remember from their childhood. There's not many Christians who have been, uh, uh, who have gone uh, to, you know, to worship services their entire lives and haven't heard this story. Um, it, it, it's a very good story, and it's particularly appealing, uh, I would say, to younger people. Um, and and I, I think one of the reasons for that is because I think the application is very clear. With that being said, um, because of that, sometimes it's, it's hard for us to come years later and after we've heard this story several, several times and think, okay, yeah, I, already, I already understand what's going on here, so let's just move on. Um, just like the flood, this is not a children's story. This is a story that children should know, but this isn't a children's story. This is a story that God wants his people to know. It's a story that he wants his people to learn from. And especially as we go throughout this study this morning, I want to really make two comparisons as we look at um, chapter 17 of 1 Samuel. We're going to make two compar comparisons specifically between David and Saul and between David and Goliath. And we're going to do it in that order. Within this story, I think you see a few contrasts between David and Saul, the king that the people chose, and his reactions to the current opposition, and the king that God has chosen for his people, that he the kind of man that he wants to reign uh, over his people. And I, I think that there's some application to take from this of just seeing the man that God chooses. The, the man that he will bring victory through will be the leader towards uh, the victory, the salvation that God provides. And so I just want to make a couple of comparisons between David and Saul and David and Goliath. First of them being, uh, again, I want to look at the comparison between God's chosen king, uh, a man that would, uh, uh, a man after God's own heart, and then the people's king. We already looked at 1 Samuel chapters 8 and 9 when the people cry out for a king, and for the wrong reasons. And I think, as, as we've said before, uh, and as I've tried to make the case before, I think God gives them a king that, that they were describing. They got a mascot, essentially. They didn't get a man who was a man after God's own heart. They didn't get a man who was going to be brave and courageous and, and like Joshua, say something like, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. You do what you're going to do, but me and my family, we are going to be faithful. 
Saul doesn't really do that. We already looked at one uh, story in 1 Samuel chapter 13. We could have looked at 1 Samuel chapter 15. Each story, and even in between, you have Saul just making several mistakes. And because, I would say, of a lack of faith, or just faithlessness, um, and because of the, those mistakes that he makes, because of the faithlessness that he has, God has already said that he's going to tear the kingdom from him. He's going to give it to another. Now, here we meet uh, uh, David in chapter 17, and we see, even within this chapter, that this is going to be that man. So, <clears throat> we won't read the entire, uh, the entire uh, chapter, but I do just want to read just uh, some choice verses from this chapter. Picking up in verse 20. Um, this is after uh, Goliath has already cried out to the uh, armies of Israel and he is speaking to them and, and kind of threatening them and giving, you know, challenging them and especially challenging Jehovah, the God of Israel. Uh, David comes into the story as he um, enters the territory, hearing this. It says, So David arose early in the morning in verse 20, left the flock with a keeper after his father had told him to go, took the supplies, and went as Jesse had commanded him. And he came to the circle of the camp while the army was going out in battle array, shouting the war cry. Israel and the Philistines drew up in battle array, army against army. Then David left his baggage in the care of the baggage keeper and ran into the battle line and entered in order to greet his brothers. As he was talking with them, behold, the champion, the Philistine from Gath named Goliath, was coming up from the army of the Philistines, and he spoke these same words, and David heard them. And we'll look back at verse 11, uh, uh, earlier in the chapter, where he says some of these things. But essentially, this is his, his challenge towards Israel and the God of Israel. In verse 24, when all the men of Israel saw the man, they fled from him and were greatly afraid. Verse 25, the men of Israel said, have you seen this man who is coming up? Surely he is coming up to defy Israel. And it will be that the king will enrich the man who kills him with great riches and will give him his daughter and make his father's house free in Israel. Then David spoke to the men who were standing by him, saying, What will be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should taunt the armies of the living God? The people answered him in accord with this, with this word, saying, Thus it will be done for the man who kills him. Now Eliab, his oldest brother, heard when he spoke to the men, and Eliab's anger burned against David, and he said, Why have you come down, and with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know your insolence and the wickedness of your heart, for you have come down in order to see the battle. But David said, What have I done now? Was it not just a question? Then he turned away from him to another and said the same thing. And the people answered the same thing as before. Beginning in verse 31, When the words which David spoke were heard, they told them to Saul, and he sent for him. David said to Saul, let no, man's servant, uh, or let no man's heart fail on account of him. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. Then Saul said to David, You are not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him, for you are but a youth, while he has been a warrior from his youth. But David said to Saul, Your servant was tending his father's sheep. When a lion or a bear came and took a lamb from the flock, I went out after him and attacked him and rescued it from his mouth. And when he rose up against me, I seized him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear. And this uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them, since he has taunted the armies of the living God. And David said, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear, he will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, Go, and may the Lord be with you. 
Then Saul clothed David with his garments and put a bronze helmet on his head, and he clothed him with armor. David girded his sword over his armor and tried to walk, for he had not tested them. So David said to Saul, I cannot go with these, for I have not tested them. And David took them off. He took a stick in his hand and chose for himself five smooth stones from the brook and put them in the shepherd's bag, which he had, and in his pouch, and, in his, sling was in, and his sling was in his hand. And he approached the Philistine. Then the Philistine came on and approached David and the shield bearer in front of him. When the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him, for he was but a youth and ruddy with a handsome appearance. The Philistine said to David, Am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. The Philistine also said to David, Come to me, and I will give your flesh to the birds of the sky and the beasts of the field. Then David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword, a spear, and a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have taunted. This day the Lord will deliver you up into my hands, and I will strike you down and remove your head from you. And I will give the dead bodies of the army of the Philistines this day to the birds of the sky, the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is God in Israel, and that all this assembly may know that the Lord does not deliver by sword or spear. For the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our, our hands." Then it happened when the Philistine arose and came and drew near to meet David, that David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. And David put his hand into his bag, and he took from it a stone and slung it, and struck the Philistine on his forehead, and the stone sank into his forehead so that he fell on his face to the ground. Thus David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone, and he struck the Philistine and killed him, but there was no sword in David's hand. Then David ran and stood over the Philistine and took his sword and drew it out of its sheath and killed him and cut off his head with it. With the Phil when the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled. The men of Israel and Judah arose and shouted and pursued the Philistines as far as the valley and to the gates of Ekron. And the slain Philistines lay along the way to Sherem, even to Gath and Ekron. The sons of Israel returned from chasing the Philistines and plundered their camps. Then David took the Philistines' head and brought it to Jerusalem, but he put his weapons in his tent. We'll stop there. Like I said, I didn't want to read the whole chapter. Some of you are thinking, you might as well have. Um, when I was uh, putting this together... I had planned to have full usage of my voice. <laughs> so, uh, but the, the reason I wanted to go through this is because I want it to be fresh in our minds as we make some of these applications and make these comparisons between David and Saul and David and Goliath. Coming back to Saul, first of all, and looking at David, both his faith and David's faith, I just want to compare the, compare, uh, the two, essentially. David's faith in this story and frequently after this story it, it consistently makes him zealous for God's honor and for the glory of God. But Saul, his lack of faith consistently leads to further timidity. We already read in verses 23 through 26, <clears throat> as, as David hears the words of Goliath, this challenge that he's giving to him and Jehovah, he kind of responds, uh, uh, he, he hears this, and he's, and he's so, uh, not just annoyed, but he, he is offended. And it's not an offense like, you know, when someone says something bad about us. He is offended for God's glory. He is offended because someone has come. This uncircumcised Philistine, he says, this man, we're going to allow him to defy the, the living God and his armies? I think it's beautiful how this young man comes up and sees this veteran and says those words. And it's not like he's just saying these just in front of his, his peers. It's not like he's just saying this and not going to act on them. We just saw he acts on them. He truly is uh, deeply hurt or offended for 
the, the glory and honor of his God. But, but Saul, throughout the story, what you find is the exact opposite. Saul has, it seems, kind of you know, slunk back. He is uh, not at the, the battle line. He is not uh, you know, challenging Goliath back. Rather, he hears this challenge, and like the rest of the people, he uh, it sinks back and, and becomes sorrowful. Really, just like he has so far from chapters 13 to chapter 15, he just bows to the demands of others. Instead of being a leader, instead of being a king, uh, in this circumstance, I, I think that here's an example of where people follow the leader. Saul, his timidity, I think, leads to further timidity. His leadership constantly led Israel to further faithlessness, while David's leadership brings those around him to further righteousness. You see this especially later on in David's life in 2 Samuel chapter 23. 2 Samuel chapter 23. <clears throat> A couple of um, moments here. 2 Samuel chapter 23. <clears throat> Beginning in verse 13. In verse 13 of 2 Samuel chapter 23. It says, Then three of the thirty chief men went down and came to David in the harvest time to the cave of Adullam, while the troop of the Philistines was camping in the valley of Rephaim. This is kind of, we would look at this and say maybe a random story. Uh, it's a story about some of David's mighty men of valor. In verse 14, it says, David was then in the stronghold while the garrison of the Philistines was then in Bethlehem. David had a craving and said, Oh, that someone would give me water to drink from the well of Bethlehem, which is by the gate. And usually when we, when we say those kinds of things, it goes unanswered. <laughs> you know, uh, if, if um, there was a, a brother who came up and gave an invitation on, on, on this notion, and he started the invitation by saying, I would really love a Coca-Cola. And then he waited for about 30 seconds, and he said, and he came to this story, and he said, I don't have <laughs> this level of, of authority. I don't have this level of devotion as a leader. Um, but he goes on to make uh, some pretty good application. But here, after David has said this, and just kind of said this, I think, basically to the air, verse 16, the three mighty men broke through the camp of the Philistines and drew water from the well of Bethlehem, which is by the gate, and took it and brought it to David. Nevertheless, he would not drink it, but poured it out to the Lord. And he said, Be it far from me, O Lord, that I should do this. Shall I drink the blood of the men who went in jeopardy of their lives? Therefore... He would not drink it. These things the three mighty men did. Now we look at this and think, again, maybe, first of all, maybe this is just kind of random. We look at this and say, how could David do that? <laughs> just pour it out on the ground after they have, have, after they have you know, risked you know, life and limb just to get this water from this specific well. Um, now, ultimately, what I think David is doing is showing greater honor towards those men. But ultimately, the, the point I want to make here is David had such a devotion, he inspired such devotion from those under him, under his rule, under his reign, that they would risk this just for a, a cup of water. Um, and, and, and this isn't the only time that you see something like this. Back over in chapter 18 of 2 Samuel, 2 Samuel chapter 18 in verse 2, look at how his soldiers speak to David. David sent the people out, one-third under the command of Joab, one-third under the command of Abishai, uh, the, uh, of Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, Joab's brother, and one-third under the command of Ittai, the Gittite. And the king said to the people, I myself will surely go out with you also. But the people said, You shall not go out, 
For if we indeed flee, they will not care about us. Even if half of us die, they will not care about us. But you, you are worth 10,000 of us. Therefore, now it is better that you be ready to help us from the city. Then the king said to them, whatever seems best to you, I will do. So the king stood beside the gate, and all the people went out by hundreds and thousands. Now, the reason I wanted to come to these, uh, just a couple of these accounts is you see time and time again that David, he led in such a way, in, in the way that God would have him to lead, that he does inspire this kind of devotion and this kind of faithfulness. Uh, you never really see this kind of reaction to Saul's reign. In fact, over and over, the people follow his lead and they flee in the midst of battle. They flee when they just, they, just when they see the armies approaching, like in 1 Samuel chapter 13. And so you never see his leadership evoke that same kind of, uh, that same level of devotion. But David, his zeal was infectious. And I think there's something to take from that. Beyond that, David's focus was on God's glory first and foremost, while Saul seemed to only be just, just focused internally on, on his self, on his own glory instead of God's. Um, back over in chapter 17 of, of 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel chapter 17, in verse 45, you see again there, it says that David said to the Philistine, you come to me with a sword, a spear, and a javelin. But I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have taunted. This day, the Lord will deliver you up into my hands, and I will strike you down and remove your head from you, and I will give the dead bodies of the army of the Philistines this day to the birds of the sky and the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, and that all this assembly may know that the Lord does not deliver by sword or by spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into your hands. That's how David speaks in the midst of a giant. I mean, a literal giant. This is a big man. And David... You know, when you look at this, this he does not compare. I mean, it's, it, it's a clear outcome what's going to happen, especially when you think about the fact that this is a seasoned veteran, David, a shepherd. We know how this works out, right? But this is the kind of confidence that David speaks with. But you look in First uh, uh, Samuel chapter 18, beginning in verse 6. First Samuel chapter 18 <laughs> beginning in verse 6 it says it happened as they were uh, coming when David returned from killing the Philistine that the women came out of all the cities of Israel singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tambourines with joy and with musical instruments they were celebrating this victory the women sang as they played and said Saul is slain as thousands and David is ten thousands what does Saul do glory be to God that he has brought the victory may God have the honor of, this, of, of overcoming his enemies. It's not what he says. It's not what he does. In verse 8, after he hears these lyrics, it says he became very angry, for this saying displeased him. And he said, they have ascribed to David ten thousands, but to me they have ascribed thousands. Now what more can he have but the kingdom? And Saul looked at David with suspicion from that day on. And it's so, it, it is just so sorrowful when you see this. I am convinced that Saul did not have to end where he does at the end of 1 Samuel that he does not have to die on his own spear because he just would not accept this, this punishment that God had given him, but also this, this one that God had anointed. This was one of the Lord's anointed, and Saul rejected him from the beginning. And why is that? Because his pride was hurt. Because he could not suffer any, uh, 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 he could not suffer any glory taken off of himself 
Whereas David only focused on God's glory. Now, this isn't to say that David was perfect and sinless. I mean, we're even going to talk tonight about some of the, the mistakes that he made throughout his life. But, but in the midst of all those mistakes, I think that those mistakes kind of prove him more of a man after God's own heart. Because how does re, he react during those mistakes? When he's caught by Nathan. When Nathan says, you are the man. You've killed Uriah the Hittite. You've taken his wife unlawfully. How does David respond? How dare you? With the authority of a king, he could have put Nathan to death. But immediately, after, after Nathan says, you are the man, he says, I, I have, I have sinned. And he immediately brings the focus back to God and, and, he, and not on himself. And I think that is beautiful and consistent. David continues to grow in righteousness while Saul, he only ever seems to, to attain and maintain a mere veneer of faith. In 1 Samuel chapter 15 and verse 24, after he has uh, not obeyed God fully, what it looks like is, even in his response to Samuel, it's almost like, oh, you come back with me. Because I, I, need, I need it to almost look the part. I need to make sure that the people know that at least you are still with me. It almost kind of looks like he's indicating that. It doesn't, he never really shows full repentance. He never really says fully uh, the, the, way, the way David does. I have sinned against God. Saul says, okay, yes, yes, I did sin. But he doesn't care that this was an affront to God. David always did. Uh, and he always comes back to God uh, in, in, in the opposite way of Saul. And so I think that that's something to make of this contrast between the, the king that the people chose and this king that God is bringing to lead over them. Well, another thing is that David, uh, his faith specifically overshadows uh, and is emphasized over Saul's faithlessness. David knew, as we already read, that it wasn't by sword or spear that one is delivered, while Saul could never see past that threat. I mean, he's looking, David is looking at a literal giant, and he says, I mean, this is all very, this is all very good show, essentially, but it's not going to be enough. And why is, why, how can he have the confidence to say that? Because he knows who's on his side. He knows that it's going to be God who brings the victory. That he is a greater giant standing behind him. Goliath, he doesn't have any such thing. What does he have? Gods of wood and stone. Mute, deaf, and stupid idols, as the prophets would say. That's all that he had. Oh, so yes, you have a big spear. And you even kind of look, I think it is interesting, the, the description that's given to Goliath, how weighty his armor was, how weighty and kind of uh, uh, extravagant his weaponry was. All of that show. And a stone, a single stone takes him down. Oh, he looked so grand. It was a great spectacle. But what did it take? It, it, it took the faith of David, knowing that God was going to bring the victory. One stone brought Goliath down. Um, I think I love looking at the words of David as he writes psalms and, and, and spiritual songs as you get to the wisdom literature especially in Psalm 27 a very familiar passage beginning in verse 1 it says the Lord is my light and my salvation whom shall I fear the Lord is the defense of my life whom shall I dread when evildoers came upon me to devour my flesh my adversaries my enemies they stumbled and fell Though a host encamp around against me, and that happened frequently throughout David's life, my heart will not fear. Though war arise against me, in spite of this, I shall be confident. And what does that I mean? What does that mean? Con fide, with faith. He was confident. 
I truly believe that even as he looked at, at Goliath face to face, that he had this level of confidence. Now Saul, he clearly never had that kind of confidence in God. He only ever looked at the exterior. He only ever looked at the material. He never thought beyond the material towards the spiritual and eternal things. And what a shame when, when we likewise get so focused on the temporal and, and forget about the eternal consequences, the eternal importance of things. But David never did forget that. Uh, he, he consistently, even when he does make mistakes in his life, he comes back. And he comes back under God and submits to him and remembers those things. So David's victory, uh, finally, I, I think even, even his victory over just the Philistines uh, here and throughout his reign greatly overshadows Saul's. So here's yet another contrast because Saul, he will, he will always struggle against the Philistines. David, under God's king, eventually all of the regions of Canaan come under Israel's control. And that's, uh, and that's because of David's um, uh, commanding armies as, as, as you look throughout his reign. And especially when you get to his son Solomon's reign, there are nations that are coming to Israel and giving tribute. Saul only ever struggled with the enemy. David really brings this <laughs> overwhelming victory that just like the women were singing about in chapter 18, greatly overshadows Saul's. Under God's king, this is the kind of victory you can expect. Under the, the king, that the leader that the people want, you will always have struggle. You will always have, you know, imminent defeat. You will always have sorrowful timidity. Uh, and I think that it's important to see that contrast even from the very beginning because you get to the New Testament and what king are we under? You can look at several different passages. A passage like Psalm chapter 2, or not, not chapter, there's Psalms, Psalm 2. You read about the Lord's anointed and how the nations, they rage against and they try to, you know, uh, you know, undo the fetters, undo the chains of, of God and his anointed and, and they try to wage war against them. And what does it say? God does, he laughs. And as he speaks of, of this anointed one, that today I have begotten you, who is he speaking of? But of Jesus, the one who would come, who would be not just a, a king like David, but a king better than him. But you still have people today wanting the contrast. People who would rather have, they don't want Jesus as king, they don't want God as their king, they want a Jesus that they can, you know, pick and choose what he teaches. They want a king that they can control, they want a mascot. And ultimately what you find is that, just like in, just like in these days, it never leads to overwhelming victory, and it never leads to confidence even, but it leads to the same timidity and the same weakness and the same feeble faith. And so uh, the, the question I'd ask after all of that is when you see those connections and those contrasts, we need to understand no matter what the king wants for us, no matter what king God gives us, his king is always better. And we can look at him with that same level of confidence that David has as he looks at a giant and says, I, I know my God will deliver, the, will deliver me. Um, and so I want to look specifically at uh, this, uh, that, that fight between David and Goliath and make some contrast between them. As you see here, and uh, hopefully all the 
text is, is visible. It's a bit smaller than I meant for it to be, so I, I apologize for that, but I'll, I mean, I'll be reading, the, reading it out. But you have, essentially, the world's champion. This is the man that the world would produce because they want the victory. This is what it looks like. And as we already described, it is extravagant. And it is scary. Uh, but then you have God's champion, and who is that? It's a humble shepherd. Uh, and again, you can already just see the shadows pointing towards Jesus. But you have a humble, uh, young, and small boy approaching a giant. This matchup doesn't make sense. When you look at it from a purely carnal mindset, when you look at it the way the rest of the world would look at it, none of this makes sense. How could God send this one? How could God choose this man? This man is nothing. He is a nobody. He comes from nothing. He is just a shepherd. And he is not a veteran. And he's not, a, he's not even a warrior like his brothers with the same level of training. <laughs> but all of that just to say, uh, d- did he need it? No, rather, what he needed was what gave him salvation, which was God. By visual perception alone, David looked ill-equipped, he looked incapable, while Goliath was the clear victor. And I would just suggest that I think it is the same way today. Over in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul writes to the church in Corinth, and he says something interesting. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, beginning in verse 18, it says, For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. Where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? And notice what Paul says, how he has made it foolish. For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God, God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For indeed, Jews ask for signs and Greeks search for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified. To Jews, a stumbling block. And to Gentiles, foolishness. But to those who are the call of both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. And the base things of the world and the despised God has chosen, the things that are not so that he may nullify the things that are, so that no man may boast before God. <clears throat> now, what is Paul saying here? He says from a purely um, carnal, from a purely worldly standpoint, God's way has never made sense. He is speaking of the cross here, and how does the world view that? It's clearly a defeat. Jesus dies on the cross in a shameful way. Of course that's defeat. But then he talks to the Christian and he says, yes, that may be how they see it, but what do you see? And what do you see, Christian? You see the very means of the victory that God brings you. You see the very means of your salvation. And it looks foolish and it looks weak. But is it truly? Oh no. That, that is my strength. That is my refuge. And though all the world may say how foolish, how naive, how utterly, uh, how, how, how utterly silly and absurd, 
We look at that and say, that is, just like David could say, this is my confidence. This is where I have my faith. This is how I can go through the daily. This is how I can suffer all things. This is how I can look even death in the face with that kind of confidence. Now, I bring all this up just to say, all the way back in 1 Samuel chapter 17, what you see here is that God was even showing that his victories look different from, from the very beginning of the United Kingdom. <laughs> you don't have to just wait till you get to the cross. It's always been this way. David didn't look the part. Yes, that's true. Even when Samuel goes to, to uh, find of one of Jesse's sons, Samuel's kind of surprised. Even, even David's father, Jesse. Jesse said, well, I mean, surely it's not him. Are you sure it's not one of, these other, uh, one of my other sons? Even to the father of David and this judge. Neither of them could see it fully, but they do. And, they, and, and uh, David is anointed by Samuel because Samuel obeys God and he does exactly what is instructed of him. The world looks at David and his tools as foolishness, his confidence as naivety. Is this not the way the world tends to look at the gospel today? Oh, are you really going to come to me with the Bible? I, I, don't, I don't care about what the Bible says. I don't care about what, what the cross means to you. That's, what a caveman. What, what, a, what, a, uh, what does uh, Richard Dawkins like to say? What an imbecile. What an unsophisticate. They like to get really big in their words. And what they ultimately have is just that. They just have a, a, a nice little thesaurus, but saying nothing. Because there's no fact behind those insults. Ultimately, with all of the strength, with all of the muscle that Goliath had, all he had was insults. There was no strength behind that. There was no might behind that when you are in opposition to God. And David knew that. And so with that being said, I think as we look at those kinds of taunts that Goliath gave uh, uh, in 1 Samuel chapter 17, just very quickly, in verse 8 beginning, he says, He stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel and said to them, Why do you come out to draw up in battle array? Am I not the Philistine and you servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves and let him come down to me. If he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will become your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall become our servants and serve us. Again, the Philistine said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. And when Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. And again, I think you have there the people following the leader. Saul did not have the confidence and so the rest of the people followed after him in the same despair, same silly despair, unfounded despair. This is the way that God has always, uh, has always made his victory essentially look. When you look at the, the period of the Exodus, how the people are delivered from Egypt, they get to the Red Sea. It looks like these fools have brought this judgment on themselves. They have, they have you know, uh, kicked against the goads, and they have thrown off their chains of Egypt just to go to an embarrassing defeat. What happens? God leads them. They walk across the Red Sea like dry land because of the power and the miracle of God. <clears throat> now, Skipping down to verse 41 of, of 1 Samuel chapter 17, back to what uh, Goliath actually says as he speaks to David. Am I a dog 
that you would come to me with sticks in verse 43 and the Philistine cursed David by his gods the Philistine also said to David come to me and I will give you your flesh to the birds of the sky and the beasts of the field and we've already read how David responds to that but David's faith was unshaken by any physical threat or any physical discouragement these insults again what do they hold no weight whatsoever not when you're defying the God of Israel in in Psalm uh, 118, Psalm 118, in verse 6, uh, or whoops, uh, I guess I got a little bit behind on the chart, excuse me there. Psalm 118, in verse 6, beginning, it says, The Lord is for me, I will not fear. What can man do to me? The Lord is for me among those who help me. Therefore, I will look with satisfaction on those who hate me. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. Now again, princes, royalty, they have authority, they have power. But David knows better. I'm not going to trust in these worldly temporal things. I'm going to trust in the God, who, the eternal God, who sees past all of those things. Who has, who has literally put those things into being. He literally caused them to exist. I think sometimes we forget to think about it in these kinds of terms. That, that it's not like God is going to be surprised by any of the strategies of the enemy, by any of the tools of the enemy, the insults, the discouragements they try to throw. It's not like God hears that and says, oh, ah, what are we going to do here? That's one of the things I like to say when it comes to the Old Testament and the New Testament. It's not that you come to the New Testament and God thinks, uh, okay, we're going to have to just nix everything that we were trying to do. Let's figure out what we're going to do here. No, he had a plan the entire time. And he's not going to be surprised and, and dumbfounded by the strategies of the enemy. He knows their heart. He knows their thoughts from the beginning. And when you think about what we just read in Psalm 118, if you'll just turn over to Romans chapter uh, 1 very quickly, or Romans chapter 8 very quickly. <clears throat> Romans chapter 8. Beginning in verse 31. I think you see something very similar. Paul says, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us, give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us, who will separate us from the love of Christ. Will tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? For just as it is written, for your sake we are being put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So what is he saying? Especially when you see up here in Psalm 118, how easy it is for us to look at the physical opposition, the, the worldly opposition, and become, I think, sorrowful and and timid like Saul. And I think ultimately it's because we forget what David did not forget. And we forget what Paul says in Romans chapter 8 as we just read in verses 31 through 38. We forget 
that all of these physical things can happen. It, it, it's not like he's saying, okay, I, I have trust in God because I know that he's not going to bring death towards, to my doorstep. Paul is writing to, to New Testament Christians who are going to be facing death at their doorstep. James will talk about that tribulation and say, you consider all of your trials joy. Why? Because it produces endurance. Even the trial of potential death. In nowhere is there a promise where God says, you can have this kind of confidence, you can have this kind of faith, you can have this kind of joy because you know that I will never allow even the most uh, terrible of circumstances to befall you. What the promise we are given in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 13 is that God will not allow us to be tempted beyond our ability. But that does not say that death will never be threatened. That does not say that you will never suffer like Job suffers. In, in fact, with all of that being said, with all of that being a potential, what God says is, I can deliver you from all of those things. Not in a purely worldly mindset. But I'm going to bring you on the other side of it. I think it's the same kind of joy that Jesus had, as, as uh, the Hebrew writer says in chapter 12, that he considered all that he despised, even the shame of the cross, for the joy set before him. Because he knew. He knew where he was going, and he knew who he was going back to. And so we need to look at it in, in the same way. We need to have the same level of confidence, unshaken faith, as, as David, in the face of certain giants. And so the, the question I'd like to ask is, do we view God's promises the way that David did? Do we view it as reality? A lot of the times when it comes to the spiritual blessings, when it comes to spiritual things, we don't look at it as the reality. The reality is what I can see in front of me and what I can touch. But guess what? We can't see eternity. We can't even see, uh, we, we can't even see the glory of God the way Moses was able to. So if that's what your faith is based on, you're going to fail very quickly. That's not the kind of faith David had. David was able to look at Goliath, and he didn't, he didn't himself see the glory of God in the way Moses did, but he could say to Goliath, I'm, I'm going to take your head from you this day. Note the fact, David didn't have a sword on him. What kind of confidence that suggests. Goliath was a very real, literal giant, but David did not cower because all he had was a spiritual reality. I want to be the very same. That when giants do come my way, that I don't become timid just simply because all I have, all I have is a spiritual promise, a spiritual reality. That is the very thing that we should take refuge in. And so we do we view that uh, in the same way that David did. Well, finally, we have a king that truly is the ideal, not like Saul, better than David. We have a conqueror that triumphs over all, over all opposition, over all the enemy against him, but I would also say over what may, uh, may be a struggle and a hindrance to you. Whether you're a Christian or not, you may struggle with a certain temptation. You may struggle with something where you think, I will never be able to get over this. I've struggled with it my entire life, and I have no idea how I could possibly break the habit, break this from my mind. God comes in and says, I, I, I can break it. I can break these bonds. I can bring the victory. What we must be willing to do is submit ourselves to the king, so that way he can conquer. 
And that is the invitation of Jesus. Are, are you willing to submit to that king? Are you willing to pledge allegiance to him? Are you willing to do what he tells you to do? Repent. Turn away from all the things he tells you to stay away from. Confess your allegiance to him. That he is the son of the living God. And be baptized into his death to rise in newness of his life. So that way you can be a part of his kingdom. Are you willing to do that? If you are, you know, whatever your need be, we would love to help you in that. Let us help you in any way possible uh, and, and come forward as we stand and as we sing.